can't take it anymore, I tell you. The walls. The walls are starting to close in on me. All right, this is General Order 1, the General Order 1 podcast, a.k.a. Goop, where we are discussing the Star Trek Strange New Worlds TV show. I'm joined by my longtime friend, Ben. Hello. And uh, not Jason today. It is a couple days for Christmas, and Jason has uh, a better offer. He's got a better offer. What could be better than this? I don't know what he's doing. He's got a bunch of family stuff. He's got he's got 1,400 places to go. So I feel like he could have skipped that for an important event like recording this podcast that no one will ever hear. So today we are discussing uh, Season 1, Episode 7, which is entitled The Elysian Kingdom. Uh, hang on, is, isn't, isn't this Episode 8? Oh, did I copy and paste? Oh, you're right, I did. I copy and pasted the wrong number. It's Episode 8, but it is called The Elysian Kingdom. So real quick, uh, shout out to my 13-year-old son, Roland, who did the intro music for this. He uh, designed and wrote the intro music, so uh, good job, Roland. Yeah, very well done. It definitely beats whatever, uh, you know, public, publicly available free music we could have grabbed instead. Right. I think what I was using before, like I just searched, yeah, like license-free space music or something stupid. That's how invested we are in this product. That's right. Nothing but the best. Uh, so the episode opens, we hear a voiceover from Umbenga, and uh, he mentions that the Enterprise is conducting a routine survey of the Genesian Nebula. Um, and he, he mentions that there's not a whole lot for sickbay to do, you know, as part of this, uh, survey. So he's kind of doing his own thing and he is doing some research on, uh, psychokemia. Uh, I believe that's how it's pronounced. It's the disease that his daughter yeah, has. The, the space leukemia that his daughter's got. Yes. He mentions that time is running out for her health. So he sort of implies that he can't keep her in the pattern buffer forever. Yeah, it's it's unclear whether he means that he can't keep her in the buffer much longer or if her disease is just progressing because he's been pulling her out. But right. he, he seems to imply that she only has hours to live at this point. He says something like, you know, weeks have turned into days, have turned into hours. It, you're right, and it's it's definitely not clear, but the clock has ratcheted up, so he's kind of doubling down on what he can do for his daughter. And, and yet she still seems 100% fine, so apparently... You know, the the dip into, uh, you know, your health deteriorating from this disease is incredibly fast. Yeah, signochemia is not debilitating just because she looks like a very healthy 10-year-old or whatever. But Yeah. In fact, like, she demands essentially that um, that he read her the story that they always read. And he agrees to it, which is crazy. <laughs> he yeah. just got done saying she's literally got hours left. He's trying to find a cure, and she's like, "Hey, I just, you know, can you can you finish reading me the story?" He's like, "Okay, fine, you know, one more chapter before bed." The same story that he's read her ten times, right? Uh, it's worth noting that the title of the, the the book that he's been reading her all along is "The Elysian Kingdom," which again is the name of the episode. Yes. So he makes mention that he's read this story to her multiple times, um, and they start talking about um, the ending of the story and that they don't really like the ending. Um, and he says, well, what if we could change the ending? And he's uh, he, he starts to, I guess, get a little nostalgic with his daughter because um, she doesn't like the ending and... Well, it's not even he's it, she's the one who's pushing it. He's like, hey, well, that's, you know, that's what happens. We can't, you know, it can't be changed. And she's, you know, she's a kid, so she doesn't, you know, she doesn't accept boundaries. She just says, <laughs> well, why? Like, why can't it be different? And he's kind of taken aback, like, okay, well, yeah, I guess you're right. There's no reason it can't be changed. It's a story. So then he gets on board and says that she'll she'll make her own story someday, and she can have whatever ending she wants. So um, he ends up, uh, it cuts briefly, he, he ends up putting her back in the pattern buffer because he can't keep her out for long. And we see him, and he's, like, mixing, like, a, like a really stereotypical, like, kind of, like, magic potion. Like, it's in a beaker, and it's dyed red. I'm sorry. This scene was so... They yeah. lost me on this one so much. Like, that's not how medical research is yes, done today, right. let alone... Yeah, he had. An, he had. A, I wrote that down too because he has an actual mortar and pestle. Like no one has used a mortar and pestle for that kind of stuff in. Yeah, since yeah, he's he's got a Erdmeyer flask. He's like yeah. pouring liquids into, and it's it's so rudimentary. Like why? 
Yeah, indeed. The the one thing that was cool is like at one point he mixes like the, some powder and some chemicals and it explodes like into a gas up into his face. And the ship or I guess sick bay or whatever, like automatically erects like this dome shaped force field over it to contain it. Yeah. I mean, the implication being that it detects there's this hazardous substance and it automatically isolates it. So, yeah, that part was cool. Um, but it, it is worth noting that he does get a face full of whatever this gas is. So, yeah, it must not be terribly caustic because I mean he coughs for a bit, but it doesn't. Yeah, doesn't do any damage. Uh, right about then, Una comes in and she wants to check with him. Uh, apparently, there was a landing party uh, post this um, routine survey mission that has come back from the surface, and they have not been cleared for duty. They need to get a medical clearance before they can. Start that their shift, and he, he's almost—he's kind of like half asleep when she comes in too. So it's—it's it's been a while. He's been standing at this workstation for hours, is the implication, and kind of nodded off when she comes in. Oh, I didn't get that. Oh, interesting. He's, okay. he's not like got his head on the table or anything. Yeah. But he's kind of just kind of hunched over a bit and just kind of staring down at the tabletop. So he's—he's huh. he's zoned out or he's thinking deeply, but. Um, yeah, a couple of things here. First of all, um, she does take a minute to kind of lightly admonish him that, you know, she understands that he's got duties to his daughter, but he's also got duties to the crew. I feel like she probably would be making a bigger deal out of the fact that he's completely blown off his duty. This seems like he's awfully compromised at this point. Yeah, it seems like well, regardless of what he's working on, yeah, if there if I think at one point she makes mentions that like this this away party has been waiting for hours and she comes in and he's like, "Oh, you're working on your daughter's thing? Okay, it'll wait a little longer." Like Right. Well, she sends him to bed, which is yeah. I mean, she kind of gets that he's not doing anybody any good right now cuz he's exhausted. But yeah, we're we're getting to the point where she probably can't keep this between them for too much longer. Yeah, uh, she's going to have to tell Pike if if their doctor is is not at a hundred percent. The other thing is, where's this landing party landing? It's a nebula. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, the next thing, so she does. She orders him to rest. She, you know, because he volunteers. She's like, "I'll go do the landing party right now." And she and she says, "No, no, no, you're no good." She she orders. I think she she suggests that he should go rest, and he was like, "No, it's fine. I can do it." And then she says, you know, okay, take that as an order. So she yeah. she lays that she lays the hammer down and says, you need to, you know, get your head back in the game. Yeah, so she's got some good exo chops there. Yeah. Uh, we cut to the bridge, and I, P- Pike makes mention that they have retrieved all of the buoys. So they're, again, doing some sort of survey mission. And uh, I thought Pike had a cool line. He says, I could get used to this. This. No battles. No chaos, just scanning a nebula and focusing on the science. Nice change of pace, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, just in the episodes we've seen, like, they've almost died, you know, how many times? So it's probably nice just to be like, oh, look, there's a gas over there. Let's go check it out for a week. Right. I, I've always thought it would be interesting if they did, and they kind of did this in Next Generation once or twice, if they did an episode where, the stakes just aren't that high and there isn't some huge disaster of the week where there's just a routine science mission they're doing just to show us that it's not all, you know, phasers and photon torpedoes in, in Starfleet. Just something totally mundane. Yeah. yeah. I mean, their primary, I mean, every episode starts with like they're, they're charting this system or they're exploring this nebula or getting readings on a supernova or whatever it is. So it'd be nice to see them spend time doing that. It wouldn't be good TV. I mean, I get it that they'd never actually be able to do that, but it, it just would be nice sometimes if things didn't get crazy. Yeah, right. I, I, I could see they they could work something into an episode, yeah. Um. So the, the, the buoys are pulled up, and they're going to get the heck out of Dodge. Pike tells uh, – he said him again, he calls Ortega's Erica. Yeah. He, said, he says, Erica, set a course from McNair, McNair Starbase. So this is kind of becoming a, a normal thing, which is interesting. I do like that Ortega's like hits back at him and she says, are you going to say the thing? Yeah. And I was kind of, and, and he pauses and, and Pike goes, hit it. Yeah. So he's clearly got a catchphrase that the, yeah. the bridge crew has copped to here. The, the enterprise cannot go to warp for whatever reason. It just doesn't work. They call Hammer. Hammer says, hey, the, I don't know, the warp core's fine. It's not me, it's you, kind of thing. 
The ship is uh, performing optimally. Spock makes a suggestion perhaps they can't create a warp bubble. Um, I think it's worth making a slight detour here that um, due to the laws of physics, you cannot travel faster than the speed of light, but warp travel is indeed faster than the speed of light. So the way Star Trek gets around that is that they create these warp bubbles around the starship and they essentially shorten the distance between points so that they're not actually traveling the same distance they, yeah, anyway I mean, it, they, it's, they don't it's, get yeah it gets hand wavy but basically these these warp bubbles change the laws of physics so that the speed of light is faster right yeah right so it's it's i, I don't know i'm sure it's explained somewhere in some manual it's not important but the point yeah. is that they have to form this warp bubble around the ship to go to warp is the only way to travel faster than the speed of light Spock suggests that maybe they can't because they're in this nebula. Right about then, the oh, they suggest going to impulse because maybe the warp engines aren't working. The whole ship takes uh, a big, not, not a shock, like it gets jar shaken, jolted, jolted, and uh, Ortega basically falls over and takes a console to the temple. And she's down. She's out. Yeah, she's yeah, gonna have like a major concussion kind of thing. And uh, right about then. Uh, Pike runs over, and then he calls Umbenga to the bridge, and we see Ortegas lying on the ground, and her temple is bloody, and she's going to have a bad day. Umbenga hops on the turbo lift and heads to the bridge, and as the doors of the turbo lift open onto the bridge, you see that it is clearly not the bridge that all of the crew is wearing some kind of old timey, you know, medieval Robin Hood era um, costumes. Yeah. Including Mbenga. Now he comes, when he steps out, he's got quite a garb on. Yeah. It was kind of a cool cut actually. Like he's, you know, in his uh, doctor uniform or whatever. And then you see it looking out from his eyes and then it swings around to him. And again, he is, he's all decked out and he walks onto the bridge and he's kind of looking around shocked because it was not what he was expecting. And uh, I think Pike says, all hail the king. Yep. Um, I'm going to make note here that he is King Ridley. Um, So in the future, that's what some characters will call him. He kind of, he being Manga, kind of looks around the bridge and realizes that they are all dressed like characters from um, the Elysian Kingdom book that he's been reading to his daughter. So he's starting to put two and two together that, you know, clearly this is some sort of hallucination or, yeah. you know, he's he's not sure. He's, um, he says, I believe he says, what the hell? And then it cuts to the credits. Oh, really? Yeah. Um. So he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's talking to the crew and none of the crew is behaving like the crew. Like, he, you know, he calls Pike captain and he's like, wait, what? And so... He he attempts to talk to the computer, so he makes mention, or he asks the computer to do a scan, and, and basically the computer says, oh, everything's fine, I don't know what you're talking about, nothing nothing is wrong. So everyone is wearing uniforms, and there are some additional like furniture on the bridge, so it doesn't really look like the bridge, but all the computer bulkheads and all of you know the main parts are still there. So the computer is still there, and it is still working. Yeah, this that's the interesting thing about this whole kind of you know fantasy slash alternate reality he's in. Everything's still there; it's just covered up with extra stuff. So the bridge is still the bridge, but it's got all this foliage and you know fantasy get up. But uh, so it's kind of like the whole enterprise is doing cosplay. Yeah, it kind of looks like a bad play. You know, just like yeah. there's there's set dressings around, you know, what it would normally be the real bridge. Right. But uh, I thought the, you know, the design team did a great job on this because it, it's different than what we typically get with something like this where we would just jump to some other world and everything mm-hmm. would be different. Instead, we're still on the Enterprise, but it's changed considerably. And I, I did make note, and I know I've said it over and over again, but like the costumes on the of these medieval characters was yeah, like great. spot on. Yeah, like it was not just you know like we got some costumes in the you know leftover from this other show. We're just going to turn them into like they are what super detailed. I mean, there was piping on a lot of. They're all textured. Yeah. Like they're very elaborate. And yeah, yeah. Yet another sign that this show clearly has some budget. 
I was, yeah, I was very impressed with the uh, the costumes on this yeah. scene for sure. Which is really kind of a change. I mean, historically, Star Trek shows have been fairly low budget considering what they're doing. You know, they have to do a lot with not much. I mean, certainly nothing. I don't. None of the other shows have extensive like costume. I mean, like certainly you have alien races that are you know lots of makeup and a little. Yeah, but it's always the same ones, so they can reuse the prosthetics over and over again. Um, half the half the aliens you see are just a human with a slightly different nose. Right, right. Uh, they have you know the same five or six shots of the Enterprise model going to warp that they just use in perpetuity. Uh, you know. They've got a shot of the Enterprise with a couple Romulan warbirds. They've got a shot of the Enterprise with a couple Klingon birds of prey. But they just use the same shots over and over and over. Uh, and, uh, yeah, once in a while, if they, you know, break out some new costuming or something like, you know, in TNG, if they have a holodeck episode, it's really cheap. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, even, like, the Sherlock Holmes episodes where they're on the Enterprise, on the holodeck. Yeah. It looks like they raided the closet at a community yes. theater or something. They, right. they don't have a lot of money. Clearly they do on this. Anyway, yeah. you know, just to you know, beat a dead horse, the, the costumes are very impressive, not just on this bridge scene, but throughout the episode. Yeah, everybody so. is just decked out to the nines in this one, for sure. Um, uh, Umbenga starts to think that um, he calls it the three QND experiment, um, which was whatever the gas that exploded in his face in sickbay maybe causing him to hallucinate. So he's starting to put two and two together that obviously something is not right. This can't be real. Um, despite what the computer is telling him. Yeah. And we've gotten a good indication that things are not, things are a little strange because, uh, you know, Ortegas, while she seems like she's in this, you know, she's this kind of alternate world version of herself. She seems basically herself. She's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of rough and tumble and a bit of a spitfire and the whole thing. But Pike is this sniveling worm. Who's... I, he he did a really good job. I was really impressed with, like, just how weird he played that character. Yeah, Anson Mount's having some fun in this one. It's totally over the top, but, like, in a weird way, it works. Like, in, in like, a bad kind of play way. Yeah. You know, like, in a, yeah, in a like a production kind of environment where you would play it over the top. Right. But yeah, I, yeah. Anson Mount, uh, good performance as a, what did you call him? A sniveling worm. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Umbenga goes to uh sick bay. He wants to get a tricorder, wants to do some scans, see if he can figure out if he's hallucinating or not. Um, so he makes it back to sick bay and just like the bridge, sick bay is covered in plants and candles um, it's very clearly designed to look like, you know, like a castle or I, I keep, you know, it, it feels very Robin Hood to me. You know, yeah. That era. Um, it's like he's gone to see like the, you know, whatever the the druid priestess or something that yeah. lives in the forest. Yeah, it looks like a Ren Fair kind of. Yeah. Um, so he uh, gets his tricorder and uh, oh, Nurse Chapel is there. And he scans her first, just you know, to see if he can figure out what's going on with the crew. Nurse Chapel is dressed like, I don't know, I want to say like a serving wencher. You know, she's she's got her own clothes on too, and I think she's some flowers in her hair or something. She looks very different. Yeah. He scans her, and he mentions that her dopamine levels are very high, and that that is a sign of heightened neurological activity. So um, the crew is healthy. I mean, they're not. From from what he can tell, things are mostly working as they should, but there's a lot of neurological activity going on in at least in Nurse Chapel. Yeah, he also scans himself, finds that he's completely healthy, and he does not have a raised dopamine. So he's now kind of identified the difference between him and the rest of the crew, but has no idea why. Yeah, it's worth noting that that Umenga's run into I don't know probably half a dozen, maybe a dozen members of the crew now, and they all are part of whatever this hallucination is. He is the only one that realizes that things are not right. Yeah, as, as he's walking to sick bay, he passes a couple random crew members who all bow to him and you know greet the king. So, yeah, it's it's widespread. We end up meeting Laon. She walks into. Uh, I think she walks into sickbay. Um, yeah. And she is playing uh, Princess Talia, who is uh, basically the main character from uh, the book. 
And she has a dog whose name is Runa. I don't know if that's important, but I wrote it down. I just thought it was interesting that they put, brought a dog into the set. I know it's hard to work with animals, and the dog really brings nothing to the story. Yeah, but it's a very well-trained dog because it, it just sits there and never barks or does anything. So I mean, it, It's essentially a set piece, and I was just like, why would you get all that trouble to get a dog if it doesn't have any part of the story? But anyway. Yeah. You know, hey, they're letting the crew. You know, this is the episode where the cast gets to cut loose. Maybe yes. that act. Maybe the actor really just wanted a dog. I, w- I wonder if that. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if that's like her dog or something. And she she's was like, like, "Fine, I'll put, I'll put on this crazy dress and act like an idiot, but I get a dog. I get to hold the dog during the show." There you go. Huh, all right. Yeah, this is a total one eighty from Luan. Oh yeah, th- yeah, very yeah. Luan, you, you Luan is even very more, even more than Pike is completely different this is a completely different person so now we know you know definitely these people are not (laughs) acting as themselves yeah laon is usually very reserved and quiet and she is overflowing and yes the dress Mm -hmm. she has on is really low cut and she's very talkative she's singing at one point yeah so uh princess talia is is the good guy you know the good side of this book and she makes mention that she wants mbenga to stop uh queen nev who is the bad guy in this story um so she basically says you know you need to go stop you need to find queen nev and you know put a stop to her because she's doing things she's just being a bad guy so uh we see a quick scene where um he is in the hallway mbenga is uh in the hallway and he is off uh, looking for Queen Nev to, I, I guess, progress the story. It's not super clear, you know, why, how he knows where to go or, or why. Um, but he meets up with uh, what, three um, people in red and black clothes. And they were, if I remember right, they were all just uh, like B players. There were no main characters. No. Really. Well, well um, one of them is, shoot, I'm going to forget her name. Is it Marshall? She's the like the ops officer on the bridge. Oh, really? I didn't, oh, I didn't notice. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mit, sorry, Mitchell, not Marshall. Okay. En- Ensign Mitchell, who is the, yeah, the, like Ortega's counterpart on the bridge. Ah, um, they, they introduce themselves as the crimson guard and they make mention that they have, uh, captured, uh, the wizard caster. Um, and you see that they have a uh, hammer down on the ground um, surrounded, and they are attempting, uh, in essence, to drag him off. Um, Umbenga, or actually, I think Hemmer starts talking. You know, and he's like, "What is this? this is crazy!" Like you, he's not in character, and so uh, Umbenga is able to realize that Hemmer is not affected by whatever this confusion that's going on. So, as of as of right now, Hemmer and Umbenga are the only two members of the crew not affected. They do ultimately end up, uh, they being the Crimson Guard, dragging Hemmer off because they just out, they, uh, what's the word? They are more they armed. Are no, yeah, yeah outnumbered. The other guys yeah. don't have any weapons, and they just say, hey, we're doing this, so. Yeah, so uh, Mbenga has to regroup because uh, up until this point, he hasn't come up against any opposition, but clearly now they are armed. Oh, it's worth noting, I mean, I think it goes without saying, but they're armed with swords. Um, there's no phasers or anything like that. This is all very in character, in universe that they, they hold off Mbenga yeah. with uh, some period piece swords. So we see uh, it cuts back to uh, Pike's planning room, and there are candles on the table. So the lighting is very low, you know, so they're playing up the medieval aspect. And uh, Pike, Mbenga, Ortegas, and Laon are basically hatching a plan to rescue Hemmer. Uh, there was some funny play. Ortega gets out her sword and she makes mention that her sword is named Starfall. Yeah. And I, th- I think Laon says, oh, that's a dumb name for a sword or something like that. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of back and forth at this point between Pike and, and I can't remember what Pike's, you know, sir, whatever he is. And uh, Ortega, their two characters clearly hate each other and they insult each other a couple times. Right. So they basically uh, hatch a plan to the th- to go and rescue Hemmer. Um, 
Mbunga convinces Laon and the dog to stay because in this world she's you know the princess she's very I want to say fragile yeah um so he convinces her to stay um but Ortegas again with her sword Starfall is very eager to go and knock some heads so yeah. there's a there's a little juxtaposition there because I mean that's really the role that Laon should be playing because she's the chief security officer and she's clearly the one that's most trained but in this episode they they do a little flip. Right. And uh, Pike says, you know, hey, well, I, you know, I'm going to be more useful to you back here. So, you know, I'll just go back to the castle. He's trying to weasel out of going along. Right. Yeah. Um, and and uh, this is the first I think this is the first mention of the Mercury Stone. Or they've, they've mentioned it to him before. They've told him that they need the Mercury Stone. He doesn't know what that is. He knows it's some kind of weapon, but he doesn't know where it would be. Um. And they they tell him he's got to go get it, and he tells them that uh, Hemmer has it or knows where it is. So that's how he convinces them that they need to go rescue Hemmer. Yeah, I don't think he knows what the Mercury Stone. He knows it's from the book. It's it's right. sort of the you know it's the sword and the stone of you know whatever the story is. So it's it's an important piece, but he doesn't know how it's going to play in you know this real scenario that's unfolding. Right. Let's see. So they decide to go on their quest to rescue Hemmer. So they go down. You know, I think there's essentially they reuse the same hallway. I think yeah. I think they they did sick bay. They did the bridge, and then this one hallway they made them look medieval. Um, and so they go down this probably what I assume is that same hallway, and they meet uh, they meet the wizard Pollux um, along their way on their quest, and it's uh, it's Spock with like long hippie hair. Yeah, and we we get a, a little bit of a sense that he's he's a little bit less reserved than Spock normally would be, but he's still pretty Vulcan-y. Okay. He doesn't I, I, I assumed, you know, when they, okay, here here's Spock and he's gonna end up being crazy and outlandish and you know, over the top so that the you know that actor will get a chance to cut loose a little bit, but he's still pretty much Spock. Do uh, yeah. So now we've met. Um, so in, in the the crew believes that Hemmer is a wizard named Castor, and Spock introduces himself as a wizard named Pollux. Oh, and it's worth noting that uh, that that Spock is all in black. So you kind of get this juxtaposition that Spock is essentially the bad guy, probably the bad wizard, right. and that Hemmer is most likely going to be the white wizard of the story. Do uh, do the names Castor and Pollux mean anything to you, Ben? Oh God, they do. Uh, shoot, I'm drawing a blank as to why. Uh, Castor and Pollux were twin. They were the twin sons of of Zeus in oh, that's Greek right. mythology. Yeah, and they they are actually also, and, and I assume this is where the, they got the names. Um, they are also the two brightest stars in the zodiac constellation Gemini. Well, that would do it. So they are they are a, a legitimate astronomical they're the twins phenomenon yeah. yes um so they uh, they make mention that they have to go through the swamp of infinite deaths to reach queen nev so there's like some um where to get that name i i don't know cuz presumably if you go there you die so right. how do you tell anybody about it that's well <laughs> That's the whole thing about the swamp. So they they kind of like build this up. They're like, we have to go through the swamp of infinite deaths, and like the 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 crew is like, they don't want to do it. They're like, not the swamp of infinite deaths. And literally, the next scene is they're in front of Queen Nev. Like, there's no mention. Yeah, of, yeah. That I, I, I wrote so much for the swamp of infinite yeah. deaths. It's like <laughs> literally, <laughs> they just bypassed the entire thing. Um, it's so, separate time. It must. It had to be because it would wouldn't make sense otherwise. It's just yeah. funny. They're like building it up, and then it's like, oh, okay, now we're here. Yep. So we see uh, Queen. They they've met Queen Nev now, um, and uh, it's Uhura, and she has like this crazy, like kind of white dress with like, you know, like these weird like shoulder. I don't even know how to describe. Yeah, it. Yeah, they're. She has a really cool costume on. Like this three D printed. Yeah. Kind of. Helix type thing that comes off of her shoulder pads. Yeah. Um, and she's, yeah, her face, her makeup is cool. Like she has gems on her. Yeah. She, again, costume uh, people, the the makeup people on this episode did a really good job. So uh, ultimately uh, what, what ends up happening is Spock sells them out to the queen. 
Um, so he, you know, started out, you know, telling them that he would help them and it was like, Oh, but it was all a trap. Yeah. Um, so, uh, queen Nev basically says, she's like, I, I want the mercury stone. Tell me about the mercury stone. Where do I get the mercury stone? And, um, the next thing we see is, uh, well, Menga tells him that he doesn't know where it is and he doesn't necessarily know, you know, so he doesn't immediately give up the information that he has about this. And that does not make the queen happy. Yeah. So she throws them all in uh, this prison, which yeah, she actually, says they're going to be tortured soon, but she locks them up until it's torture time. Yes. The so there are actual like prison bars. They are behind bars, and they are looking out, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to get out. Uh, Pike, Ortega, Hemmer, and Mbengar in this prison. It and looks you, like they're in the transporter room. Yeah, the camera. So it starts out with a close-up shot where you think they're in some sort of actual prison, and then it, the camera pulls back, and you see that they're in the transporter room with bars on it. Yeah. So once again, they're just reusing an existing set that they have. Yeah. Uh, so it's a clever bit of you know, getting to use resources and not have to make all these new sets or do a bunch of CG, but it really worked. Like it was, it was really smart to do it that way. Yeah, it was, it's, it was fun. I liked this episode just again, cause it didn't take itself seriously. Yeah. So like, right. So they're all in jail and, and Pike is just losing it. Like comically, like he's, <laughs> he's like, he's, he starts claiming that the, you know, the room is shrinking and he, and the bars are closing. Yeah. Yeah. Been, I mean, it seems like they've been in there about 30 seconds and he starts to completely <laughs> lose it. Yeah. Um, so uh, Hemmer makes mention that he felt some entity. Uh, maybe you can fill me in a little bit on this. So he does. He's talking about like his his ear things. Right. I think he well, makes they're, tra- they're trying to figure out, OK, what happened that caused this? And yeah, Hemmer mentions that he he was in engineering doing something with the warp core when he felt this, this entity try to enter his mind. But he, he's essentially able to like reject it or push it off is what he says. Yeah. Cause he felt like it was kind of like trying to take him over or something, I think. And what he realizes is that the entity is part of this nebula that they're in. So like the, the essentially what he's saying is the nebula itself is sentient. So they are perhaps trapped by this nebula. Yeah, and he drops some. I, I don't know if it was techno babble or if it was a real concept that the writers borrowed, but he he mentions it's. Um, I'm gonna forget the name of the. I'm assuming it's some kind of scientist that came up with this theory of the something brain, the Boltzmann brain. Yeah, so I don't know if that's a real thing that some person named Boltzmann had a theory about. You know, some consciousness could spring into being, but that's how he explains it: is that you can potentially have energy that just becomes conscious, I guess, is the, the way they're explaining it. So I, I felt like that was a, a little bit of unnecessary techno babble. Like hmm. there's an entity that lives in the nebula and it's got psychic powers. That's enough. We don't need more than that. Right. Well, my 10 seconds of Wikipedia says that the Boltzmann brain is a real thing. It was uh, discovered or I don't know, maybe discovered is the wrong word. It was it was a thought experiment from like the late 1900s. So whatever it is, it's very old. Okay, but it is a real thing. So well, props for them for not just totally making something up. Seems weird that that's how Hemmer would describe it. Yeah, right. Like he's how not would you, human? Yeah, that's that's also yeah, good point. Number one, you would make this crazy reference of 400 years in the past. Right. And number two, it's from a culture you're not even familiar with. Yeah. Um. And he's an engineer. Why would he know anything about brains? Right. Yeah, it just not yeah, a, it, yeah. It, yeah. Why? Why between these two people, Doctor Mbenga <laughs> right. and, and Hammer, he's the one who knows about it. Seemed a little strange. Yeah, that's a good point because doesn't Mbenga say, I, "Oh, I think I remember that." Yeah, but he's like, like, "Have you ever heard of that?" He's like, "Yeah, I think I remember something about that in medical school." And then yeah. Hammer explains it to him. But yeah, yeah. Um, ultimately, the scene ends with uh, Hemmer says, oh, maybe I can get us out of here with the help of some powerful magic called science. And he basically yeah. gets out, what, his little sonic screwdriver or whatever that it's he like has. Like a welding torch or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he goes over to the gate and, you know, it spins up and spits out some sparks. Actually, there's a good line before he starts it up because uh, he says, don't look, it'll blind you. 
Like, you yeah. know, because it's going to spit out some sparks. It's going to be really bright, which is, you know, just another nod to Hemmer being blind. Yeah, and Pike says, well, you know, what about you? And he says, I'm already blind. The queen gets word that the prisoners have escaped. Um, so Spock and uh, the Crimson Guard are uh, dispatched to attempt to recover the prisoners. So we're back in uh, what I believe is that same hallway. Yeah, she tells Mitchell that she's got to, you know, basically go get the prisoners back or else. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of Ortegas's time to shine. So there's Spock and then three Crimson Guards, I believe. Um, Ortega's name in this universe is Adya, A-D-Y-A. I don't know if it's important, but I, I wrote it down. Um, and she just straight up disarms one of the Crimson Guards. So the Crimson Guard comes at her with a sword and Ortega's has got nothing. Yeah. And she just kind of like jukes out of the way and like elbows the dude in the chest and then just takes his sword. Kind of well, like they mock her. Ass. They're like, "What are you going to do? You don't. Yeah. You're not even armed." And then the guy comes up and she takes him out and grabs his sword and says, "Well, I'm armed now. Let's go." <laughs> yeah, it was actually a pretty badass scene because she totally took that guy out. Yeah. Ultimately, she does end up getting overpowered just because they outnumber her. Yeah, it's four to one. So it, yes, yeah, it was, it was as bound as to happen. Was going on, she's she's doing quite well. I'm like, come on, they're not really going to have her win this four to one sword fight, are they? And of course, no, they don't. So, yeah. So we we hear the we hear arrows fly across the screen, that stereotypical uh, sound. Yeah. And a couple arrows hit at least the front um, crimson guard. The, the, yeah, the two the two crimson guards in front get shot with arrows. The, the one in the back that's that's Ensign Mitchell that's kind of running the show. She get her sword gets hit, or her sword arm, or whatever gets hit, and she drops her weapon. Okay. Um, and at this point, I mean, I was already, I was already kind of thinking as Ortegas was having the sword fight. You know, Umbega's just kind of standing back with Hemmer, and they're just watching this happen. And then these arrows start flying, and uh, you know, sorry, I'll ruin the reveal. It's it's uh, it's Una. It's it's number one who's mm-hmm. coming to save the day, but. You know, Umbenga and Hemmer just watching. She just murked two of these guys. These are crew members. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just, a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah this isn't just this. Isn't, these aren't bad guys. These are crew members. She just killed two of them, as far as they know, and they don't seem upset about it at all. Yeah. <laughs> they don't do anything huh. to try to stop this sword fight between members of the crew who are trying to kill each other. They're Ooh. literally just standing there watching, going like, "Okay, I guess she's got this covered." Yeah, I, I would would have thought that Umbenga would be a little bit more concerned for the safety of his crewmates than he is here. But that's a really good point. I did not even think about that. Yeah. Oh well. Um. So now that the guards are dispatched and Una has joined the party, <clears throat> excuse me. Hemmer and Umbenga uh, make it to engineering, um, where they actually where the ship is still functioning and they can you know do some scans and. Um, no, it, well, it is important to know, though, we, we get introduced. Una is the, the Huntress, or she's got some kind of title that... Zamira the Huntress. There we go. And uh, this is uh, earlier in the episode when uh, Umbenga's daughter was complaining about the ending. It was She didn't like that the good guys didn't all work together, was, was her big beef. Uh, and she wanted, uh, I can't remember... Who Ortegas is Sir whatever you said it just a second ago. I think it was Aja. Yeah, she wanted Sir Aja and the Huntress to to team up. Yes, and Umbenga said, "Well, that you know that doesn't happen. Sorry, like that's not how the story goes." Uh, and now we see them; they're teaming up, and the Huntress shows up, and they, they've they've got some banter. So these two know each other and have worked together before, which is. In you know, in contrast to how Mbenga told the story before, yeah, I think that's right about when Mbenga realizes, right? Doesn't he say something to the effect of, "Oh, you guys would know each other in real life, but you definitely don't in this book." So yeah, something and is... like, "What are you talking about? We know, you know, we know each other quite well." Is how how the Huntress puts it. So, um, yeah, they're. It was almost, that was kind of a weird line, yeah. Where she no, was no, like, it's it's pretty clear as they as they're they're getting this this banter back and forth that they have some kind of romantic attachment, right? So, um, so, uh, they scan. They use the, the the computer console in engineering. They scan the nebula, and they find evidence of a single life form, including activity 
oh, including brain activity, and yet there is no sign of a physical body. So Hemmer is able to determine that, yeah, there is indeed something out there, and somehow they're able to determine that it's a life form, um, but it is not a physical corporeal uh, body. Yeah. Uh, Umbenga says, a consciousness without a body. So I don't know. I kind of drew like some, uh, and maybe I may be reaching here, but that's essentially what um, Umbenga's daughter is, right? I mean, she's a consciousness without a body. She's this little yeah, girl. Kind tra- of. I mean, kind she's, of. She's not aware while she's yeah. in the pattern buffer. So I, I wasn't sure if they were trying to make that connection. Maybe I'm drawing lines there, but no, I, th- I think that's that's they're they're going for that to a certain extent, but. It's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it's not a one-to-one connection. Um, Hemmer suggests... Oh, so basically they determine that they think that this entity has essentially read Mbenga's mind and found this story and put the story together. And so he suggests that they break this uh, telepathic connection between this entity and Mbenga and... They, he like immediately goes to, well, what if we hurt Mbenga and yeah, that yeah, might that's, distract that's, him? That's his first idea. Yes, right. And Una pops up and she's like, well, I could shoot him with an arrow if that helps. <laughs> so I mean, they've already shot two other crew members. I guess. <clears throat> so actually, and then they, they figure out that Una or Nategas know each other, you know, in this version of the story, but not in the book. And then they realize that perhaps it didn't come from Mbenga's brain, but instead from his daughter's, because she would know that um, that they were friends in real life. And like right. you said, and she wanted to change the story. So they so Mbenga basically uh, barely dodges getting shot with an arrow because they realize that it may not be him, it may be his <laughs> right. daughter instead. Right. They make a quick run to sickbay. They're going to check for uh, Rukia, and she is gone. She is not in the pattern buffer. They look at the logs, and she was beamed out at 8.45 in the morning, but she has not left the ship. She is somewhere on the ship. They just don't know where. Right. And is pretty frantic at this point, because, yeah, she, his daughter is missing. That's it's not fun. Yeah, no, yeah. He's got a lot going on, and he has to worry about his yeah 10-year-old daughter. Uh, we see Spock kind of hiding around the corner. He overhears that they cannot find Rukia, and he basically runs back to the queen and tells the queen that the mercury stone that she's looking for is indeed this little girl. We see uh, Queen Nev, and uh, she has captured Pike at this point, and he kind of gets thrown on the ground in front of her. Uh, you know, he's you know trying to plead for his life. And yeah, he just basically just begs and, and he flips sides and uh, yeah, he pleads loyalty to the queen like very easily. She's he's just like I'll do anything, like what whatever you want, just please spare my life. And she says, "Well, you know, you're gonna have to swear allegiance to me." He's like, "Oh, is that it? Okay, yeah, sure, no problem." All right, done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they suspect that. Uh, so that, that was just a super quick scene with Queen Nev and, and Pike flipping, and then it cuts back to sickbay, and they are trying to figure out where Rukia is. And they suspect that maybe she got out of the transporter buffer and is now hiding. That, that, so he, they ask Mbega if she were out, where would she go? Where would she want to be on the ship? Where would she go to hide? And Mbenga says, well, she always wanted to go to my quarters, and I always told her that I would take her there when she was feeling better. Yeah, there so, was a scene at, at the beginning, well, I mean, that whole time when he's reading the story to her at the beginning of the episode, uh, she specifically asks to go see his quarters. And uh, we get the impression this isn't the first time she's asked, and he says, no, we've talked about this, you can't go to my quarters because you got to go back. So they decide that that's probably a logical course of action and they're going to run to Mbenga's quarters and she, if she is there. And uh, lo and behold, in the uh, the same hallway, they meet uh, Pike. And at first they are kind of, you know, they're happy to see Pike because he was on their side. But uh, he has, remember, he has now pled loyalty to the queen. So it turns out to be a trap. Yeah, he immediately pulls a knife and holds yeah. it to, to Mbenga's throat. Mbenga says something like, oh yeah, like, I guess I shouldn't be surprised he betrayed us because that's what he did in the book. Yeah, it was great. He was like, just... dude, you read this book like a hundred times. Why didn't you? 
why would you let this guy out of your sight for a second? Right. First thing you should have been, you know, thing one should have been, all right, Ortegas, tie this dude up and just dump him in a corner somewhere. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, Ubenga is upset at himself because he should have known that and he didn't. Um, so Umbenga actually attempts uh, a bluff against. Well, sorry, real, real quick. There's there's a line. He's like, yeah, I you know I should have known that. Like, man, I've read this book a billion times. I really should have known that. And yeah, you should have. Yeah, right. And and Hemmer, who's the biggest curmudgeon in the galaxy, as far as we've seen so far, is like, you know, hey, it's okay. Don't beat yourself up. <laughs> it's like the nicest thing he's literally ever said. Yeah, but I'm like, really? You like now when he's made this really boneheaded move, like now's when you're gonna have some empathy for your fellow crewmate? Okay. So uh Umbenga's trying to think outside the box and he's gotta, you know, get out of this scenario. And he starts with like this blustery speech that he is going to bring down the power of his entire kingdom upon them. And, you know, he's basically saying, you know, I'm not somebody you want to mess with. Um, he had a good speech. I mean, he it, did. It, and, and, and this was, this was really good. Um, so Bruce Horak, the actor who's playing Hammer, he does a great job of acting like someone who has no idea how to act. Oh, interesting. Okay. So he's, he's, stumbling and trying to like trying to find the word he wants and he he's he's not good at this ultimately like umbenga tries to bluff his way out of this and they don't take him seriously they're like okay yeah whatever like because they think he's just a king like they're anyway they're not taking him seriously so like hemmer kind of steps up because remember everybody thinks hemmer is a, a, a wizard and he's like you said he's kind of bumbling around and he's trying to bluff his way through this and he was he basically threatens that he's going to do a magic spell and ultimately he ends up pulling out his communicator and he like holds it up in the air. It kind of gives yeah. it a couple flourishes and you know, he talks up this big thing and then he hits a button on the communicator. Queen looks really worried for a second. Like, Oh geez, you know, yeah, he's this, this guy's really powerful. He's about to unleash on us. And, uh, Pollux Spock says, you know, oh, he's, he's bluffing. He doesn't have any magic. So she looks real smug for a second. I, I wasn't expecting anything because, I mean, you, all he has is a communicator. I'm like, what's he going to do with this? Like, where's this going? But ultimately, it, it works. Like Emmer is a guy who bluffs like that. Uh, it, yeah. You know, this whole, like, I'm just going to try to, like, make something up and fumble my way through. That doesn't seem like Hemmer's style. So I assumed he had some kind of engineer's trick up his sleeve. Yeah, indeed he does. He hits a button on his communicator and uh, all the bad guys essentially get beamed to Cargo Bay 12. The worst of all cargo bays. Yeah, right. The feng shui in there is really bad. Is it? Yeah. I mean, you thought cargo bay 10 was bad? Oh, man. Uh, whatever it does, it, it works, and the hallway is now clear, so they are able to make it to Umbenga's quarters. And uh, indeed, uh, Rukia is there. She has a very nice little princess dress on as well. Yep. And uh, so he immediately tricorder scans her. Uh, I'm assuming he's attempting to see if she has, you know, she's hallucinating or has, what right. was it, heightened dopamine or the, height, whatever. The dopamine levels, yeah. Um, and he notices that she has no trace of the psychokemia that she did, that, that he's been attempting to cure. So um, apparently, like, one tricorder scan told, told him everything about, anyway, I just thought it was weird he was, that was like the first thing he was looking for. Well, you know, you've got a tricorder that can tell you every piece of medical knowledge about a subject you need to know in about 10 seconds. Yeah. And you right. also need to use beakers and flasks and, <laughs> Indeed. and a mortar and pestle. Yeah. Uh, Rukia mentions that her friend, um, and I'm, I'm using the word friend in quote fingers, woke her up and made her better. So they have a little conversation with her and they basically determine that her friend is the, uh, the nebula essentially. And it, um, offered, it, it detected, I don't know how to say it. Because the, it, it was, you know, it, she was lonely yes. like me and she let me out is basically what she says. Yeah, so Hemmer offers himself as a communication conduit for the nebula. Like they kind of look out the window and they see the nebula, and he says, "You can communicate through me, 
But I think at one point he says, you know, be gentle or whatever, because he doesn't know what's going to happen. Yeah, earlier in the episode, Mbenga had asked if he could make contact with the being, and he said, you know, I might be able to, but it was really unpleasant before the the brief contact I oh, had. Oh, yeah, yeah, good so point. So it would feel like having, like, my brain pulled out of my nose yeah. if I was going to do it again. So he he's very reluctant to do it, but now he's agreed to to help Mbenga and his dog. So, so the the entity slash nebula does indeed communicate through uh, Hemmer, and it, it does mention that the entity detected Rukia in the pattern buffer, and that she was lonely and sad, and so was the the entity because whatever it is just floats out here in space and doesn't have anybody to play with. So, it empathized with her, and ultimately created this universe fantasy for her to play in because it basically read it in her head. The entity basically makes mention that she, that Rukia is healthy, but the it's the nebula that's keeping her healthy. That if she leaves proximity of the nebula, then her psychokemia will come back and she will not be healthy anymore. Yeah, then the nebula kind of <clears throat> kind of calls out Mbenga and says, you know, hey, you've had her, your daughter locked up. You're you're kind of treating her badly, and he says, no, I'm just trying to save her. And you got to let us go. You can't hold the ship like this. And she then she drops the bomb that hey, if, you know, if, if she leaves, she's going to die. At, at one point, uh, uh, they say that her body is ill, but her consciousness could stay. So her body is what's sick. Her body has psychokemia, but her consciousness is just fine. So ultimately, what this entity is offering is that hey, she can stay here. Like I will, you know, absorb her consciousness and. She will live forever, and she won't know any pain, and um, she'll just become a new being, essentially. Yeah. And they they give the that this is what she says to um, Mbenga, and he kind of has this speech and this very emotional moment about his daughter, who who's been trying to save forever, and he knows that time is going to run out. And ultimately, he says that she can go, but it's her choice. He wants Rukia to make that choice. Mm-hmm. Which I think, you know, as somebody that has kids, like no 10 year old is ever going to make the choice to leave their parent for anyone that they just met. Yeah. So, yeah, I I was that part was like, okay, sure. She doesn't understand this, the the ramifications of this choice. Right. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, little kids get scared easily. And the first thing they want is the comfort of their parents. So like when she was just like, yeah, okay, I'm going to stay here. I mean, like. 10 year olds also have no concept of their own mortality. Like that's not right. a thing she would be worried about. So, yeah, I mean, it is what it is, but ultimately, yeah, that rang a little false to me too. Yeah, Rukia does decide that she is going to stay with the entity. Mbenga, you know, sheds a tear. He's clearly upset about this. And I think I, I, he's also, you know, happy at the same time. Cause this is, you know, going to give her a little bit more life, but clearly this is a very hard decision for both of them. Yeah. I mean, he's glad his daughter's not going to die, but, um, you know, we've been talking this whole episode. We, uh, the characters, have been talking this whole episode, and Benga in particular, about. It seems like the the central theme of this story he's been reading, the Elysian Kingdom, is whether the king's willing to give up this this great power that he has, the the Mercury Stone, or or whether he's going to you know get the princess, but he can't have both. And so uh, the daughter is kind of like you know, well, you know, this is stupid. Like, why does he have to choose? And Benga is kind of incredulous with her and says, well, that's the whole point of the story is that he has to make a choice. At one point, doesn't he call Rukia? Doesn't he say you are my mercury stone? Yeah, he does. Like it's uh, a li- like the, it's yeah, a we, little, we really hammer it. Yes. yeah, we hammer it home just in case we haven't picked it up at this point, but yeah. So now we've come to the part where it's, it's Mbenga who has to make the choice of, are you going to let your daughter go and she can live or are you going to keep her with you? And she's probably going to die. So, uh, Rukia makes the choice to stay and, she sort of kind of like, I don't know, dissolves out the window, like out into this nebula. Like, I don't know, her molecules break up and go out the window to this nebula. That's what happens when you turn into a nebula. Sure. Um, So like, there's, there's a very short pause. And like, and you think like Umenga is going to have a moment, you know, and he's going to mourn the loss of his daughter or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like, she comes back in like she kind of beams in, but now she's much older. Yeah. And she says, 
you know, so I don't know how old she, if Rukia was 10 when she left, she's probably 20 when she comes back, maybe. Yeah, or, or more. I mean, yeah, and, and so Umbenga doesn't recognize her, you know, and, and she says, well, time is different for me here. And she mentions Deborah, that she has named the nebula Deborah, which was her mom's name. Yeah, and Umbenga gets pretty choked up at, at hearing. She basically tells him, you know, that, hey, I've lived, you know, I've had a lot of experiences. And like she said, the time is going faster. She's ultimately she comes back. She tells him that she's happy and that, you know, she's healthy and that it all has worked out, you know, even though he's she's literally been gone for two seconds. And she literally says, you did the right thing. And she says, promise me you'll be happy. That There's just a nice bow on that whole, you know, relationship that he doesn't have to feel guilty about whether or not he made the right choice about letting his daughter go. Right. He gets which, instant confirmation that this was the right thing. Which, I mean, that could have been such a great plot line, you know, moving forward. It is, really could have. They, they, uh, Yeah. It was, as that part of the scene was happening, I'm like, guys, this was a great opportunity for some character development. Yeah. And some interesting takes down the road, you know, did he do the right thing? You know, is that what, was that the best call for his daughter? Instead, he just immediately gets this like guardian angel to show up and tap him on the shoulder and tell him that he's a great person who did the right thing. Yeah. I mean, like he had that, that sort of special connection with what was the last episode with the golden child or whatever, you know, because he related to that guy who was trying to protect his daughter kind of thing. Like there could have been a whole like separate plot line about yeah. him second guessing his choice or, or treating you know the crew members with kids differently or whatever but anyway it doesn't matter very neatly wrapped up yes almost like the fairy tale that it's based on yeah you know maybe maybe that's part of it maybe that's why is they wanted a simple fairy tale ending yeah. good beats evil and just you know yeah okay uh ultimately uh, after that after so the scene ends and we cut to Actually, I guess we're still in Umbenga's quarters, and we see like Hemmer sitting on a chair or on the bed or whatever, and he comes to, and he kind of holds his head and makes mention that he has a big headache and that he doesn't remember anything. I think he says, the last thing I remember was working on engineering or something. He says, I can't he says the last thing he remembers was when they, they got trapped by the nebula. So uh, Umbenga remembers all of this, but Hemmer doesn't. And so then we cut back to sick bay and uh, everything in sick bay is normal. So all of the plants and all of the mortar and pestle and all those things. So that the enterprise is back to looking normal. Yeah. All the medieval trappings are gone. And Umbenga is uh, sitting in sick bay. Um, and his voiceover basically says that no, no one on the crew remembers anything from the five hours that, you know, this adventure took place. He says the logs are empty. So, I mean, there's not even any records in the ship sensor logs. There's just literally five hours of lost time. And he is reading, he has the Lysian Kingdom book out on his desk, and he's kind of just reading it and uh, trying to figure out, you know, what he's going to do, because he's the only one that remembers what happens. And then Una walks in, and she basically asks him, you know, essentially, do you know what happened during these five hours? And he says, well, yeah, I do. And then he admits to her and he starts to tell her the story. Yeah. And then that's the credits. I mean, I, I think it was cool that he was the only one that knew, but it was just like Una comes in out of nowhere and then he decides to cop to it. And um, where does that go? Like, well, I, I, I feel like when he's, she says, wait, so you remember that what happened during these five hours? And he says, yes, I, I feel like she would have said, well, okay, hold it right there. We're getting, the, yeah, we're getting everybody together right now to hear this. I don't think she would have just had this intimate conversation with him about it. She would have gotten Pike immediately. Well, can you imagine just in your daily life, you're just working at your regular old job and all of a sudden you just lose five hours. Everyone and loses everyone five hours. Everyone around you did too, yeah. Yeah, you look at the clock and it's five hours. You know, everyone would be losing their minds, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. That's just like Thursday on the Enterprise. They're like, oh, not again. Well, you know, it kind of is. So Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, so that's it. I mean, Una comes in, he tells her the story, star white credits roll, and uh, that's it. Yeah. What uh, What'd you think? Uh, I liked this episode. It was fun. Uh, I think clearly this started from a place of how do we do a holodeck episode without a holodeck? 
you know, holodeck episodes are fun. There's a reason that they keep going back to that well. It's because they're fan favorites and they're a good, you know, you get to play around. The writers get to have a good time having the characters do things they wouldn't normally do. The actors get to have a good time cutting loose and changing it up a bit. Uh, the the costume and set designers get to do some news. I mean, it's just a it's a playground for everybody. Uh, and it's fun to see these characters in, in weird situations that you normally wouldn't get to see them in. So uh, I, I don't have a, an issue with that. I, the premise was fine. Um, I like that we got to spend a little more time with Hemmer this episode. He's barely been on the show, really, at, up to this point. Right. We had that one episode where Uhura was doing her rotation with him, and they were stuck in the cargo, cargo bay, but that was about it. He didn't get to do much there. That was kind of filler, really. Yeah, so uh, it was nice to see him get get a little bit of attention. Um, speaking of just people coming in and out of the show, I'm fairly sure this is the first episode since the pilot that includes all of the characters. Because Uhura disappeared for a few, Hemmer disappeared for a few, and Benga was gone for a few. I mean, they've Luan was gone from the last one, so everybody's been gone for an episode here and there. Uh, this was the first one since the pilot again. I, I'm pretty sure that had everybody. So uh, that was nice. They and they all got a, a fun little role and a, a piece of scenery to chew. <laughs> uh, Pike probably uh, Anson Mount probably did the most scenery chewing of anybody here. Yeah, I think um, that's a safe bet. Yeah, uh, you know, let's see. The actor who plays Luan is uh, Christina Chong. She she definitely got to cut loose. That that character is very different than Luan. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, including I mentioned she she's sing, like doing this operatic singing at one point. She has a pretty amazing voice. Yeah, for uh, sure. So she's she's got some pipes. That was that was interesting to see. Um, yeah, it's it's a fun episode. I I I liked it. I what I didn't like is that we took basically this this fun holodeck episode and tied it to this really heavy plotline of Umbenga's daughter mm-hmm. and used it to just wrap that up and toss it out. It's solved. We're done. We never need to refer to this. I mean, yeah, every once in a while, someone might ask him about his daughter or something, but that's it. We've resolved that character arc for Umbenga. We're done. Everything's great. Wrapped up with a nice bow. Yeah. It just was way too neat. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, the episode of the week Star Trek's would do, and it was a lot more forgivable there. Uh, Strange New Worlds is kind of a sh- episode of the week show as well, but they're also doing serialization with right. it. And to have it just wrapped up that neat, I mean, we've spent a lot of time on this whole thing with Mbenga's daughter this season. Mm-hmm. There's been, uh, you know, it's been, it's come up in multiple episodes, and we had another episode that was heavily based around it with yeah the like the whatever the sun child or the chosen one or whatever it yeah, was that where he was getting some help from that society about trying to trying to find a cure for his daughter's disease anyway it's come up a lot it's been a pretty big focus of this season and to have it kind of tossed away in this episode was a little bit jarring i yeah i agree and again the the episode's really light and fun and then it gets deep real quick it got a bit of whiplash in the last 10 minutes of this one yeah but it's only deep for like two minutes three minutes right right. yeah it's kind of all over the board yeah yeah so uh i i i felt uh i wasn't ready for it to go that direction and it it happened real quick like you said so yeah that that it didn't land terribly well yeah you got a rating uh i'm gonna give it a seven I liked it. I, I think it's a good episode. It's fun. Like I said, it, the episode itself is fine. It's just that extra baggage that's that it's being asked to carry that it can't quite handle. Uh, but it, overall, I really enjoyed watching it. So I'm going to give it a seven. But it, yeah, it was being asked to do way too much heavy lifting. I think I had it. I had a different number in mind until we started talking about it. Cause I, I have the same problem that you did. Like, it's just, everything was just wrapped up with a bow, like too easily. It was like, yeah. okay, there's six minutes left in the episode. Like this is either going to be to be continued or I'm going to be really disappointed. And then all of a sudden it's like, 
everything is wrapped up. Yeah. And that was definitely my problem with it. But now that we talk about it, like if you're comparing this to a children's book where good always triumphs over evil and you have a very clean ending, if that's what they were going for, then in, in that case, maybe it works. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they were going for a simple children's story. So that in mind, yeah, I, I actually really liked this episode when I saw this was coming up. I was excited just because the, I remember the characters being so fun and the the costumes being great. And again, yeah. I, I really like it when Star Trek doesn't take itself seriously. I mean, ultimately, we're talking about spaceships and lasers, you know, and they can't all be heavy and and serious. So it's it's kind of nice when they can, you know, when you get one of those holodeck episodes with Sherlock Holmes or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Where they're where, Like you said, the characters are able to explore a little bit and the costumes are able to a little bit, a little crazier. It's just, you know, you get to play a little bit in that universe. Right. And, you know, I've talked uh, on, you know, previous podcasts here about, uh, you know, when Star Trek's at its best is when it's dealing with these really heavy morality plays. We had uh, episode six, which was um, Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach. That's the one with the, the Holy Child. And yeah, whether, you know, wrestling with the idea of, is it okay to sacrifice a child for the good of this society? I mean, that's there's some heavy stuff going on there. Um, so it's nice to get a break. And this episode was was great for that. Yeah, but then at the end, it yeah. just got so heavy again. So, oh, and it well. was it was such a quick turnaround. Yeah. I, I I enjoyed the episode. I think it was fun. Is it a great episode? No. Do I want every episode to be like this? No. But I also don't want every episode to be, you know, like lift us where the suffering cannot reach. I mean, at some point right. it would be too much. So I think it's good that they have a balance. Totally. I, I, I give this episode an eight okay. uh, just because I think it was fun. You know what I think could have worked really well now that I'm thinking back on it is if this this did just kind of wrap up nicely and off they went. Uh, and we had this little fun game and his daughter and, you know, let us think his daughter's cured or something and then revisit this later. And it turns out that she's degenerating again. Yeah, that's and then he has to make a decision about whether to take her back to this nebula or to keep trying, you know, that do a heavy episode. Okay. Let us have this fun one. That would have been probably better, but oh well. So one of the things we talked about on the last podcast was we were talking about the ratings for the episodes this season. Yes. And I didn't want to give too much up, but this episode is rated the lowest of all of the episodes, and it's not even close. I was tentative going into this episode, like, are you guys going to crap on it? You know, because it's not the strongest episode. Right. But it, it was interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, we, we made some good points. I don't want to rehash what we just talked about for the last hour. But I will say, and I will give you a little bit of spoiler. So there's two episodes left, and the next two episodes are the two highest rated of the season. So okay. not not to set the bar too high, but uh, the, the next ones are, are rated very highly, and I'm very excited to rewatch them. So yeah. I, I would have to go back, look back through uh, some of my my ratings for some of these other episodes, but this is definitely not my lowest. So there's no way this is on the bottom. Yeah. Um, I think in particular, probably, uh, yeah, the serene squall, the, the last one we watched, I, I that one I had yeah. some definite problems with. Yeah. The one with the Gorn that was ghost of Valeria, I think. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it, this, so anyway, the, the point is at least according to the internet, this is the lowest rated episode. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not down for that. This wasn't the worst one so far. If this is the lowest, I mean, if this is the worst of the worst, then I'll take this any day. Cause this yeah, was totally, it, it was fun. I mean, even those two episodes that you mentioned, yeah, not great, but still they were solid episodes. There's definitely been some stinkers in, in the star Trek universe, but I don't feel like totally. we've had like, I don't feel like we've had any episode this season where I'm like, oh, that was just horrible, you know? No, none of these approach anything like some of the bad episodes of Voyager, Next Generation, or... Yeah, nothing even in that neighborhood. These, Yeah, if this is as bad as this show gets, that's a pretty dang good show. All right, we will see you next time.